Amen. Please now remain standing as we turn to our sermon text from the book of Jeremiah, continuing our series in that book. We'll be turning to Jeremiah 11. This is found on page 760. And I'll remind you that Jeremiah is a challenging book, but we have the promise of God that it is a life-giving book because it is like the whole Old Testament about our Savior Jesus. So we'll see that today. We'll be reading verses 1 through 17 in chapter 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace saying, Listen to my voice, and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as at this day. Then I answered, So be it, Lord. And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Again the Lord said to me, A conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you've set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. Therefore, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. What right has my beloved in my house? When she has done many vile deeds, can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exult? The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that sin does not have the final word in our lives, but that, Lord, you have decreed a word of blessing, a word of grace. Help us, Lord, as we reflect on this passage to see the glory of Christ and to see the forgiveness and the glory of what he has given to us. 
and give us tender and teachable hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Americans, we have this natural allergy to anything formal. <clears throat> Keep it real usually means don't be so stiff. Just be natural. Keep it spontaneous. And so the worship style that appeals to most Americans is this kind of loose, go-with-the-flow style. Be genuine is the idea. Or in the realm of business, people can take offense if you have a personal relationship with the other person, and yet you still want to formalize it with a contract. They're like, what, can we just shake on it? Why do we have to formalize it? Or again, in popular culture, the understanding of romantic relationships is the, the really exciting time is when you're dating. And once you formalize something by getting married, that's when everything goes downhill. <laughs> Now, it's certainly true that formalizing things can cause them to stagnate, to calcify. And, of course, formal worship can be stuffy with people just going through the motions. That can be a reality. It's, it certainly can. But think about this. In the most important relationship of all, namely our relationship to God, God himself has made things formal with what's called his covenant. That's what a covenant is. So covenant's one of these Christianese, Bible-ish kind of words, but it's really just a, a pretty good equivalent would be simply a contract. It's just like a contract, a formal relationship between two parties. That's what a covenant is. And what this passage today in Jeremiah is going to teach us is that God's formal covenant relationship with us is actually a very comforting and good thing, if you understand it. And it also is a great challenge if you do not. So we need to understand God's covenant relationship with us. We're going to look first at where things stood and God's covenant relationship with his people in Jeremiah's day as we look at Jeremiah 11. And then we're going to think about how the covenant curses came upon Israel and Judah for their sin. And then we're going to think about how things are different now because of Jesus, um, how he himself has taken the curse on himself. And then as we think about what Jesus did, we're going to realize there's lots of implications for what it means to be here at Covenant Presbyterian Church, living in the covenant with God. So the chapter begins with recalling the terms that God has with his people. What are the actual terms of this contract or covenant? Well, he says, verse 2, hear the words of this covenant. We're going to hear about the covenant. And it says, one of those key terms is what's called the curses of the covenant. These are the consequences if someone doesn't keep the contract, doesn't keep God's commands. And what we hear in verse 3 is, cursed is everyone who does not hear God's commands. And the word hear in this context doesn't just mean, oh, they heard it, but they're hearing so as to obey. Now, what does the word curse mean when he says, cursed is the one who does not hear? Well, it doesn't mean, I don't like you. It instead means, when you say someone is cursed by God, it means that you're not in fellowship with him. 
It means that you are subject to all the dreadful consequences that come from not being in fellowship with the God who made you. So to be cursed is to be under God's righteous anger, his condemnation for not keeping his covenant. That means no peace with him. It means misery in this life. And it means still worse things, as we'll see, for the life that is to come. And, and let's just think about what is, who is the person who is cursed? It says, the one who does not hear. And what is, exactly does he say? He says, the one who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded. When did God command his covenant? Well, Jeremiah, he's like in the late 600s, early 500s B.C. So this is going back now 800 years to when God brought his people out of Egypt from the iron furnace, is what God says, this place of refinement. He brought them out of Egypt, and he says, at that time, I brought you to Mount Sinai, and I made a covenant with you. Now, it's really interesting, isn't it, that here he is 800 years later, and he's saying, now my curse is on everyone who does not hear the words of that covenant I made 800 years ago. And this is one of those moments where we realize there is this deep connection and unity in Israel going hundreds and hundreds of years back. If you are an, a child of someone who was all the way back there in covenant with God, way back at Mount Sinai in Egypt, then you are still in covenant with God. This is why Israel circumcised their babies. To be born into Israel is to be born into a relationship, a special relationship with God. Same reason why we baptize babies today. To be a child of somebody who's in covenant with God is to be in covenant with God automatically. And so what is this covenant? It is a relationship. Look at verse 4. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Now, he's talking about cursed is the one who does not listen to his covenant. But let's just remember, the point of the covenant was the enjoyment of a relationship with God. You'll be my people, I'll be your God. And look at this, verse 5. He says, the point of this is so that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. This is why obedience matters to God. It's because he wants to bless them, but he also knows you can't have blessing in a relationship where people aren't being faithful to each other. Like, take any relationship, whether it's a marriage or just a friendship, or a business relationship, if you're not being true to the other person, if you're cheating on them in some way, not being faithful to them, lying to them, hurting them in some way, you, you know that relationship's not going to work. And so God says, look, I made this covenant so we could have this relationship so I can bless you. But then he says, if you're not going to follow me, then cursed is the one who rejects these words that I've spoken to you. This is the core of the covenant. Blessings if you obey, cursings if you disobey. It's a formal relationship. And when, when Jeremiah hears this review of all that was involved in the covenant, he says, so be it, Lord. Literally, amen. Amen, Lord. Yes. Now, when he says that, amen, Lord, Instantly, we should be remembering there was another time where the same pattern is recalled to, uh, it was happening. 
Deuteronomy 27, when God had created this covenant, he says, when you're in the land, I'm going to bring you to this place where there's going to be two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And I want half of Israel on one mountain, another half on the other mountain. And I'm going to have the priests in the middle. I'm going to have them say, cursed is the one who. And then they're going to say things that are abominations to me, things that are disobedience to my covenant. And what should all the people say? Amen, Lord. This was how God wanted them to renew and to ratify the covenant with God, to, to say, yes, Lord, we accept these terms of the covenant. Here we are. We're about to live life in your land, God. We accept the terms of this relationship. Amen, Lord. But what actually happens here in our passage? Who says amen, Lord? <laughs> it's just Jeremiah. All Israel is supposed to be saying amen, Lord. And there's now just one guy left saying, Amen. Why is that? Well, verses 6 through 8 tell us there's been a long history of disobedience. There's been a long history. For the past 800 years, God surveys it in a couple verses here, and he says, For all 800 years, they did not obey or incline the ear. Everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. And during that whole time, what was God doing? Was he saying, well, I guess I'll kind of overlook it, whatever. No! He was, it says that he brought his words on them. In other words, the curses. He's been bringing the curses faithfully in response to their disobedience. What, what happened in Ahab's day? A drought. What is one of the curses of the covenant? No water for the land. The land that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey is going to become barren. What were they supposed to respond to? How were they supposed to respond to that? We were saying, wait a second, the land that's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey is not flowing anymore with anything. How have we sinned? They were supposed to repent. You see, the, the curse at the end of Israel's history, the exile to Babylon, that's the ultimate covenant curse. That's at the tail end of an entire history of God being faithful to try to bring his people back, to show them their sin by bringing the curses of the covenant on his people. You take another one, like when they lose in battle, and they lost in battle to the Philistines, First Samuel 4. That's one of the curses of the covenant. With God on your side, can you ever lose a battle? No. So when you lose, don't you think that should make you ask, like, how are things going in my relationship with God here? That's the point. They should have heard and felt these pains and said, wow, we need to repent. But they did not. And that brings us now to Jeremiah's generation. He says, verse 9, things are no better. He says, a conspiracy exists. Verse 9, among the men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, when we hear the word conspiracy, we think of rebels plotting to overtake the government. That's exactly what's happening here. But it's not the government of Judah. It's God's kingship. God's people have been plotting to take over God, their king, rejecting him. How do they do that? Verse 10. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. In other words, the pattern of all those 800 years, they're following through on that, and they have gone after other gods and served them. So try to understand. Verses 1 through 5, that's the principle of the covenant. Blessings if you obey, cursings if you disobey. Verses 6 through 10 here are reviewing what actually has happened. They have disobeyed not just this generation, but for the past 800 years. And so that brings us then to the conclusion of the principle and the history, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen. So try to recognize the justice of God here. This is stunning stuff. I mean, this is the kind of thing, wait, when you're praying to God, surely he's going to listen. He says, I'm not going to listen this time. But we see the justice of this, right? What did God do to them? He's saying, I'm not going to listen to you when you cry to me. What have they been doing this entire time? They have not been listening to God. The punishment fits the crime. So they want to worship other gods? God says, well, okay, on the day of your distress, go ahead and call to those gods and see all that they're going to do for you, which, as he says, verse 12, is going to be nothing. So Israel's broken God's covenant. They have lost fellowship with God. They are now under God's curse. We now see verses 11 through 13, and now look at verse 14. He says to his prophet, he says, Do not pray for this people. Do not lift up a cry or a prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen. When they call to me, in implication, I'm not going to listen to you. Jeremiah. So here's Jeremiah. He's the last of the faithful of faithful Judah. He's the last one saying, Amen, Lord. And even his prayer, God says, I will not answer. There will be no intercession for my people from you. I will not even listen to you. What does that mean? Well, it means that now we are in a broken state of the covenant. The curses of the covenant have now come upon Judah. There is now nothing left for them except exile and judgment. We see how inevitable this is in two ways. This is the second point now. First, there's this echo of of Exodus 32, the golden calf. What happened there? Right as soon as God was making the covenant, right at the very beginning, they turn and worship this cow idol. Right while Moses is getting the, the tablets, they're already doing the very things that they're doing in Jeremiah's day. What happens? Moses comes down, breaks the tablets. Why? Because already the covenant has been broken. And yet, God says, I'm going to now destroy this people. And what does Moses do? He prays. He is God's prophet. He says, Lord, forgive your people. And God hears, and he relents. He does not destroy now we see just how inevitable judgment is. Because now, in the same situation where people have been um, disobeying God, worshiping other gods, the prophet, the one person who could reverse the judgment, is now silenced. There will be no reversal of this judgment. Judgment must come. And if you really want to feel how appropriate this is now, After 800 years of sin and idolatry, we read verses 15 through 17. It gives us the the gut reason for why this makes sense. What were God's people meant to be? He says, they were meant to be my beloved in my house. In other words, my beloved wife. God's people were supposed to be in joyous fellowship with God, the way a marriage is supposed to be. You formalize a relationship so that you can have joy in the relationship. You're committed to each other. What right has my beloved in, in, my, in my house, God says, when she has done many vile deeds? There is no sacrifice for this. All this going after other gods, it's basically spiritual adultery of the worst kind. And God says, you want me to just continue to 
like go on with this for 800 years more? <laughs> like pretend that this is okay, that we can actually continue to have some semblance of a relationship? No, what right has my beloved in my house when she's done these vile deeds? Or to take another metaphor, look, I made you, I'm like, God's like, a, I'm like a gardener. I planted you as this beautiful olive tree that's supposed to bear good fruit. What have you yielded for me? Nothing, corruption. It's time to set fire to the tree. This is why God says we have reached the total failure state of the covenant. Now we must execute the final clause of the covenant, exile. And when God does that, this is what I want you to understand. This is what God wants you to understand in this passage. When God brings the covenant to a close, and he brings the Babylonians, and the Babylonians destroy Judah and take them away, this horrific event, God is not being unfaithful to his people. He is being faithful to what the covenant said. What does the covenant say? It does not say, sin all you want, and we'll just kind of overlook that. No, it says, when you, when you disobey, the final curse of the covenant is my judgment, exile, casting you away. And what God wants his people to see is, I am not being unfaithful when I bring these curses of the covenant. In fact, What's amazing is he didn't bring those curses 800 years ago. <laughs> that he's been so patient, so just tenacious in pursuing them with his prophets, giving them so many opportunities to turn back, but they refused. And so judgment must come. And as we're absorbing this, and we're, we're letting this kind of sink in, wow, this is the end for Judah. It's over. God is casting them out. Away into exile, the, the covenant is ruptured. They're, they're no longer in fellowship with him. They're no longer in the special covenant relationship with him anymore. We're wondering, what future is there? What future is there for Judah? Is there anything that could come to heal such a permanent rupture? And before we can answer that, we need to talk about the third point there on your outline, which is that this situation, this situation of permanent rupture between God and his people, is not just there for, like, historical curiosity. Like, us to sit in our little armchair and say, oh, isn't that interesting that um, Israel was uh, sent away into exile? Well, you know, what's on TV? <laughs> you know? No, that is not why God gave us the story of Israel. He gave us the story of Israel so that we could understand the story of humanity, of all people. It's like God has taken the story of all people all humanity, and he's put it on a national stage in the people of Israel so that we can then understand our situation. All nations can understand their situation by understanding Israel. And that's why we read 1 Corinthians 15 earlier. Do you remember how it said, in Adam all sinned and all died? The point is this. All people, all people, not just Israel, Every human being is in covenant with God. Now, Israel had a special covenant, that covenant that was made at Sinai. But all people, if you are a human being, you are in formal relationship to God. You have a covenant with God through Adam, the first person. And God gave Adam a covenant with a very similar structure to Israel. What did he say in the garden? 
Essentially, it's obey and you will be blessed. You get to stay in the garden. Disobey and you will be cursed. Dying, you will certainly die and be sent out from the garden. And what happened? Everybody, when Adam and Eve sinned, everybody sinned and in them and fell with them and are therefore in a covenant rupture state with God. We, the covenant with Adam is permanently broken. There is nothing that Adam could have done after he disobeyed with the eating the fruit and defying God, saying, I don't, I don't want to follow you, I don't want to obey you. There's nothing that Adam could do to make it right. It's over. He is away from the garden forever. And that means every person who is born into Adam's race is born not just into Adam's sin, but into Adam's formal sentence of exile, of rupture with their relationship with God. Sin has forever ruined our relationship with God. Everybody is born an idolater. Everybody does the thing that was described here, worshiping these other gods. Well, our idols might not look like little statues, but remember two, two weeks ago we talked about all the things that we can make into idols, you know, money, relationships, power, whatever. If we understand this, that our default state in Adam is the same place where Israel got in our passage today, we understand the, the terrible peril of our relationship with God. We are, like Judah, under God's curse. And now we can ask, as I was asking just a few minutes ago, what future is there? Not just for Israel. What future is there for the human race? Paul raises this in Galatians 3. He says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and does them. Sounds a lot like our passage, right? And what, we, what should we say in response to Paul? Amen. It is right. That is true. Cursed is everyone who does not keep all these things written in the law. But now we can say, as Paul says in Galatians 3, that there is a way for those who are cursed to become blessed once more. As terrible as exile was in Jeremiah's day, the ultimate outpouring of God's covenant wrath was on the cross of Jesus Christ. What does Paul say later in Galatians 3? He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the, the curse of the covenant, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who ha is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. These words, blessed, cursed, these are covenant words. And what I want you to see is that all that Paul is saying here presupposes the very thing that Jeremiah is talking about, this formal relationship between the Lord and human beings. And when Jeremiah says, cursed is everyone who does not keep this law, and when, and when, when Paul says, cursed is everyone who does not keep this law, that means that we are due that curse, but Jesus has come to take the curse of the covenant on himself the very, and try to fathom this, the very, the only covenant keeper, the Lord Jesus himself, the one who was the only one who deserved the blessings of the covenant, received the cursings instead so that we might be blessed. And so 
What did Paul, what did Jeremiah say here? What did God say to Jeremiah? There's no escape. And that's exactly right. There is no escape. If you are under God's curse, there is only one thing left for you, judgment. The only way for you to pass out of this place of un, unescapable judgment, inescapable judgment, is to pass through the judgment, through Jesus Christ, your substitute. There is no other way. There's no other way for God and his justice to make things right with us. Now that he's done this, do you realize the massive implications of this for you, a Christian? Do you understand that now that Jesus has brought you, by being Jesus himself, being a curse for us, becoming a curse for us, and receiving in himself all that was due to us for our sin, do you realize that the new place he's brought you into is a place of a new and better covenant that cannot be broken. We're going to see more about this when we get to chapter 1 in Jeremiah. But understand the glory of this, just a glimpse of it today. If Jesus has truly taken the curse of the covenant on himself for your sin, and he has, then we can never again lapse into this place of thinking, oh, this bad thing happened to me, right? The equivalent of the drought or the loss in battle. This bad thing happened to me. Therefore, I must be under God's judgment. No, never again. Never again do we have to look at something bad happening in our lives and say, I must be on God's bad side. I must be under the curse of the covenant. No, never, never again. It is true that God disciplines his children. He allows Christians to experience some of the consequences of our sin. I mean, if, you, if you're going to you know, be really wasteful with your money and, and blow the wad, and on fruitless things, well, okay, you're going you're gonna to have to experience poverty for a while, right? He will allow us to experience some of the consequences for our foolish actions, but he will never, never lay the curses of his covenant on you. All of those things, even those hard things, are his loving discipline where he's calling his people back. So, so brothers and sisters, if you are belonging to Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, then you will never, ever, ever be again under God's covenant curses. The new covenant that Jesus inaugurated with his blood is an unbreakable covenant. It's guaranteed by his obedience, and therefore the blessing is sure. So do not question God's love. Do not question whether he truly loves you when he makes you walk through some dark path. Instead, rejoice in the, in the blessings of the covenant. And understand this as well. As we're re- reflecting on this is how God works. This is how he relates to human beings, the, this covenant formal relationship. Understand that, as I said before, the cross is only the beginning of God's ultimate covenant wrath coming on this world. Today, we still have to say, cursed is the one who does not walk in the ways of God's law. There is still a day coming when God will bring his covenant wrath on this earth. And there are lots of Christians who no longer say amen to this truth. There are lots of Christians today, so-called Christian teachers today, who will deny the reality of hell. And they'll say, oh, when you die, if you don't believe in God, you just are annihilated or whatever. You you cease to exist. Okay, it's a totally man-made doctrine because they didn't like the curses of the covenant. We need to affirm, yes, the 
wrath that's shown in the book of Revelation is for real. It's the covenant curses of God for all sin. And therefore, that makes what are, where we are in history is a very urgent time. This is a time where all around us are people who don't even realize they're in this ruptured relationship with God, where they are under God's curse and where God's judgment is coming. And we need to urgently seek to call them to be reconciled to the, to the God who only, the only way to be reconciled to him is through Jesus. And so I'm asking you, are you sensing this urgency? Are you willing to commit to praying that God would use you, use his church to call people to himself? Are you willing to undertake avenues for speaking of Christ to a lost and dying world? God's purposes will not fail. He will be vindicated in the end. And so, brothers and sisters, you are deeply loved. You are not accursed. And there is hope for covenant breakers. Let's be thankful for the refuge that is found in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that as you've taught us about the curses of the covenant, you've also taught us a way for those curses to be removed through the blood of Jesus, your son. Thank you that he was willing to go and receive in himself the wrath that we deserved. And we pray, Lord, that as he was willing to make that sacrifice, that we would be willing to be those who go forth with the words of life, that others would be reconciled to you and know and love you. Lord, we know you can do this to anybody because you've done it for us. And so, Lord, give us hope. Give us urgent um, prayers. Give us faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.